Kia ora koutou and welcome. I am Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Vice President, and it is my pleasure to host the NCDSA's podcast. Whether you are at work, in your office, on your commute, or on your daily walk or run, we hope that you find it an insightful and informative listen. So today on the podcast, we are highlighting the very exciting Combined Scientific Congress, Australasia's premier anaesthesia conference for 2022. It's hosted jointly by the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists and the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and it will be held both in Wellington and virtually from the 21st to the 24th of October this year. Now, first up, we are joined by Dr. Dan Frey. Dan, you are one of the scientific conveners for the conference. It is so nice to have you here today. Can you tell me a little bit about who else is on your team? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk and for promoting the CSC. Um, And it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, So the other members of the CSC team are uh, Nick Rogers and James Moore, and the three of us work here in Wellington. Nick's a generalist anaesthetist with strong interests in perioperative care and the high-risk surgical patient. Uh, James is a cardiac anaesthetist and an intensive care specialist. And he has interest in trauma and research, and I'm a cardiac anaesthetist and a novice researcher. So James and Nick brought me on board as a third scientific convener at the start of this year to help with the final phases uh, of planning this meeting, which, as you know, they've been working on already for over three years. Yes, it has it been such a long time planning this conference, and now you're in the home stretch. Can you tell us a little bit about the timeline that the scientific conveners, well, the conveners in general, have worked through to, to get to this stage? Sure, yeah. As I mentioned, Nick and James had been working on the meeting since early 2018. Uh, the three international keynote speakers have actually been locked in since about the middle of 2018. And the original program was put together in 2019, and that was all ready to go uh, up until COVID hit in early 2020, and it was put on hold. So fortunately, our international keynote speakers were able to stay involved. And we were also really excited to be able to add Kate Leslie to our lineup as the Australasian keynote speaker. The key themes that we initially planned, we felt they remained highly relevant. Uh, So this last year has primarily been about fine tuning our program. And we're really excited about the program that the team's put together and we think it's gonna be a really great meeting. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like such a fantastic program. I mean, COVID's just dominated everything for so long now, and at times it feels um, a little bit like things are getting a a bit easier. But when you're planning this, what sorts of contingencies have you actually had to put in place to allow for COVID still now in 2022? Yeah, that's a really important point. And our, our focus has been on making this a meeting that will bring people together in person after such a long time of not being able to do that. And we're really excited about that aspect of it. But as you say, with ongoing uncertainties around travel with COVID, we've also ensured that the meeting uh, will run as a hybrid format. Uh, So that means that all the talks are being streamed online and they're available to watch at a later date. Uh, Also, our speakers will have pre-recorded their talks just in case of unforeseen travel disruptions uh, or you know any other issues that might preclude them from attending in person. One of the interesting kind of novel aspects of this of this hybrid format uh, is that you know often you go to a conference and there might be two sessions that you'd like to attend. 
and you have to choose. And we've all had that FOMO where everyone is talking mm. about this amazing session that they've attended that, that, <laughs> that you missed out on. Well, now you can just log in online and watch it later on. <laughs> uh, yes, it is an incredibly um, poignant benefit of COVID, isn't it? And you've got to see the silver lining at times, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> looking at the program, it's just looking so diverse, but also really scientifically robust. What criteria did you use um, to decide on the conference themes and the speakers that you approached to speak at the CSC? So firstly, we were really keen to create a program that was going to appeal to a broad range, a broad range of anaesthetists. Uh, and, but we wanted to emphasise advances in perioperative care. So the content of this meeting really goes beyond the operating room. Uh, it includes sessions dedicated to all aspects of perioperative care. So that includes uh, patient risk stratification, preoperative optimization, right through to intraoperative care and advanced recovery room care. And so we've selected keynote speakers that are experts in perioperative medicine, but they're also people who are leading the research that's shaping the future of anaesthesia and our practice. Uh, and, you know, we've also felt that it's very important to achieve gender balance, and we've achieved that across our keynote speaker group and as much as possible across the board for, for the speakers involved in our meeting. We're really excited to be hosting... Professor Denny Levitt from Southampton University, Professor Steve Shaper from Stanford, Professor Kate Leslie from Melbourne University, and Professor PJ Devereaux from McMaster Canada as our keynote speakers for the CSC. And we also have a really great lineup of high impact uh, local and international invited speakers. And so, what are some of the key topics that will be talked about? I think our plenary sessions probably give the best indication of the topics that we've tried to prioritise for this meeting. We have plenaries with a specific perioperative focus, uh, with, for example, Prof Deverett challenging us on how to get the most from preoperative preparation, um, Professor Devereaux discussing new paradigms for perioperative care with a focus on the postoperative period primarily, and Professor Schaefer exploring disruptive technologies in anaesthesia. But the plenaries are also going to give us an opportunity to reflect. Uh, and for example, Professor Leslie will be unpacking what we've learned about our work and ourselves through the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have Tony Fernando taking us on a deep dive into compassion and healthcare. Um, our concluding session on our final day is gonna be a really interesting session with our keynote speakers debating what each of them think is the single most important aspect for making future gains in anaesthesia care and that's going to be really fascinating to observe with their unique and, and complementary angles on perioperative care. Yes absolutely and looking at the program that final day looks really exciting. What are you most looking forward to about the conference? Yeah look, I'm really excited about the, the contents of the scientific program and also the great lineup of workshops and case-based discussions that we're running. Um, but to be honest, the thing I'm looking forward to the most is returning to this full immersion in-person meeting format. As we've already touched on, you know, I think online and virtual meetings, they have and they're going to continue to play a really important role in our education and our networking going forward. Uh, but nothing really beats getting together in person with our colleagues from Australia and New Zealand and from all over the world. Yes, absolutely. Look, I couldn't agree more. 
connecting with each other during the pandemic has just been so tricky. What can people expect from the conference? Can you maybe walk us through the program highlights? Yes, yeah, so we are going to be running, in addition to some of the things we've already touched on, there'll be day, day, uh, daily lunchtime sessions, and they'll give us opportunities to network, uh, as well as hear about new developments from industry speakers. We've got a great social itinerary to cater for all tastes, and it will give plenty of opportunity to catch up with colleagues and hopefully form some new relationships. Uh, we have a welcome reception on the Thursday evening, on Friday after work exhibitor drinks, we have our gala dinner on the Saturday night, and on Sunday night we have a family-friendly evening out at the theatre. Yeah, they all sound really fantastic. Um, and you mentioned that there's some workshops on offer too. Can you let us know what they will include? The workshops, I will say, booking out fast, so um, I just prioritise that if people are keen to participate, just to get in soon and book those. Um, <clears throat> the team's running a variety of emergency management courses, including adult and paediatric ALS. Uh, there's a major hemorrhage course, a KIKO anaphylaxis. Uh, there are also various diagnostic and procedural ultrasound courses, which are becoming you know, very important and, and, and helpful parts of anaesthesia care. So that includes regional and vascular access, uh, some workshops on uh, target controlled infusion pharmacology, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, workplace management, uh, sessions dedicated to sustainability and well-being. So we've got a really great range of, quite broad range of options uh, for, for participants to, I guess, improve not just their practical knowledge, but also, uh, but also their skill sets. Yes, absolutely. Um, and keep up with those valuable CPD points as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and... Also, what about trainees? I really loved attending conferences as a trainee. It was just such an excellent way to keep abreast of key developments in anaesthesia, as well as meet up with other trainees, you know, especially during the lead up to the part two. What can our trainees expect from the conference? I think trainees are going to benefit hugely from hearing from speakers directly who are leaders in our field of anaesthesia and perioperative medicine. And one great example was, you know, what better way to hear about the implications of POISE 3 for our own work than from the study's lead author, PJ Devereaux. Mm. Um, but in addition to that, we have a range of, ded we have a range of dedicated trainee sessions, uh, which will include talks on preparing for the final exam, uh, a session summarising recent key anaesthesia trials, uh, a session about uh, medical leadership in the Part 3 course, which will be running in a workshop format. There are also a variety of prizes on offer for trainee-led audit research, so that'll uh, be something to look out for. Now, even though you're not speaking yourself, you are also an emerging researcher. Can you tell me a little bit about your current research interests? I'm currently undertaking my PhD with um, a program of work that's looking at the impact of different regimens of intraoperative oxygen therapy on recovery after surgery. Uh, so the aim is to achieve funding success for this and then undertake a large-scale randomised trial, uh, hopefully over the next few years, so fingers crossed. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I am also going to be talking on this podcast episode to um, Andy Klein and Wayne Morris. Can you tell me a little bit about why the committee chose each of them to speak at the CSC? Yeah, Andy Klein, he's a fantastic speaker and he speaks really well on a wide range of topics. He's the editor-in-chief of 
the Anesthesia Journal and uh, has been one of the leading voices in the fight against research fraud. Uh, he has a really keen interest in the use of high-flow nasal oxygen perioperatively and um, we're really grateful to Fisher and Paykel for bringing him over for the meeting. We're also very pleased to have been able to include a plenary session that's focused on global health. Wayne Morris is the president of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists and he has been very involved in work to improve global health and we're very excited to be able to get him to speak. I'm such a massive fan of both um, of these anesthesiologists and so it's going to be such uh, an honour to speak with them for the podcast but also to hear them and then meet and talk with them face to face which is really just the whole benefit of this conference isn't it? Absolutely I totally agree and I think that really uh, you know underscores the benefit of being able to return to this in-person format which is really exciting for all of us. Finally can I also just encourage your listeners to get on the conference website at CSC 22 .co.nz and have a look around at everything that's on offer. We've just been able to scratch the surface of uh, what the conference is offering today um, but we really look forward to hosting everyone at the 2022 CSC and uh, we feel really confident that both the in-person and the virtual attendees will find it highly engaging and very informative. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan Frey. What an exciting CSC we have coming up. And I really would encourage everyone to check out the website, which again is csc2022.co.nz. And now we have the honour of speaking to Professor Andy Klein. Professor Klein appears in two sessions at the conference. Firstly, on Saturday, October 22, where he's speaking on post-operative care to prevent respiratory complications. And then the following day, as part of the AIC editors session, meet the editors. Professor Klein, it is such an honour to speak with you today. Where are you at the moment? I'm actually in the garden at my hospital in Cambridge. And uh, it's a lovely, lovely sunny day. It's not as warm as it has been. It's been 40 degrees the last few days. So today is a relief. It's only 25 degrees. So it's extremely pleasant. And you can see it's a very nice garden around me with a massive London plane tree in the garden. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm outside the hospital. Unseasonably warm for the UK, isn't it? Yeah, it's been horrendous the last few days. It's been very difficult <laughs> to sleep or do anything. The hospital has been air conditioned. So it's been great to be at work. Whereas the house has been uh, very warm. 40 degrees is the warmest we've ever had. So we've broken all our records. Yes, wow. I mean, anybody tuning in from Australia uh, might live in states that reach those climates. But that's certainly unfamiliar here in Aotearoa. So now I know that you are primarily, um, from my point of view, known for your incredible work around preoperative anemia um, and it's just such an honor to speak to you today I've um, spent so much time reading about your stuff around iron replacement therapy and I've referenced your words specifically around iron deficiency anemia in pregnant people more times than I can recall I have to say um, but for this conference you're speaking on another passion area of yours um, which is high flow nasal oxygen during recovery from major surgery and post-operative care to prevent respiratory complications I thought that we might perhaps start from the beginning. So where did you train? So I trained uh, in London uh, at uh, Guy's Hospital, as it was then. It's now Guy's, Thomas's and King's. So it's a few hospitals merged together to form a, a, a university. 
So that was back in the late 80s, early 90s, and I qualified in 1993. So I've been a doctor now for nearly 30 years. It just terrifies me that 1993 was that long ago. Um, I know, it's it scary, feels isn't it? much more like 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Now, what led you to choose anaesthesia as a specialty? Well, the anaesthetists were always the sort of the most fun people in the mess. So the doctor's mess was where we all used to hang out at the end of the day. And the anaesthetists were the, sort of the cool people who hang out and who sort of had a very fixed day. They weren't sort of beholden to other people. They didn't have to work in firms. They just had a great team atmosphere uh, and they worked with everybody and all around the hospital. And I liked the atmosphere, the team the fact that they knew everybody around the hospital and they did a bit of everything. They worked in A&E, they worked obviously in the operating theatre, but also all sorts of different places. And I really liked that. So I thought, well, these seem like a good bunch of people. Let's uh, let's do what they do. Uh, and then I sort of followed around the, out with the, cool the surgical kids. list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that answer. Um, and who, was there anyone in particular that was a major influence in your career? So Adrian Pierce was an anaesthetist guys where I was working as a house officer and he was he anaesthetized the list for the surgeon I worked uh, for as the house officer. So I always used to hang out with him instead of the surgeon uh, and uh, see what they were up to. I was always more interested in what they were up to. So really Adrian, who, who's now retired, was a, a major sort of uh, influence on me. I think there'll be so many anaesthetists listening that identify with that, being spending time at, either as a medical student or a house surgeon in theatre with the surgeons looking longingly at the person over the other side of the curtain. <laughs> um, now, your topic, how did you become interested in it? Um, well, about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I went to a conference, much like the one we're talking about uh, coming up in Wellington, and uh, I was going around looking at all the bits of kit with my coffee, as you, as you do. And uh, one of the uh, guys came up to me and said, have you seen this? And I said, no. So he said, you need to try it on. So I tried on the high flow nasal oxygen circuit. He said, right, this is 60 liters flow. And I said, no way, that's not 60 liters. That would blow my head off. Uh, so I tried on the 60 liters and it was absolutely fine. It was comfortable. I said, well, this is very interesting. And I thought immediately it might have lots of uh, uses. Um, and at the time, the, they were using it mostly preoperatively for pre-oxygenation, having used it a lot in paediatric ICU and a little bit in ICU, uh, adult ICU. So I thought, well, this is very interesting, not just uh, preoperatively in an ICU. I thought this would be really useful because we could use it on the wards. So I got them to bring us a couple of mm. units uh, to Papworth, and we started doing some studies in, in different fields. So we tried it in thoracics first, uh, and then in cardiac surgery, and then finally in cardiology in, in the cath lab. Yeah, cool. And then what's your current research interest? So currently we're looking at enhancing our enhanced recovery pathway. So we have a sort of a, an enhanced recovery pathway mm. where we try and optimise everything to get the patient through their recovery after surgery uh, you know, in a, in a, as fit as possible. Uh, and uh, one of the ways we uh, are looking at is whether high flow nasal oxygen, as soon as you extubate them, if we put the high flow nasal oxygen on, whether that improves their, their chest because it reduces atelectasis, it mm. produces uh, ox uh, oxygen that's humidified and warmed and is much more comfortable than your traditional drying uh, nasal oxygen, which is, or mask oxygen through the mouth, which is very uncomfortable and horrible. Uh, whereas this is much more comfortable, as I discovered when I wore it myself. 
And so um, we, we're, we're doing a multi-center international study uh, with 10 centers in the UK, seven in Australia and Auckland in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, as soon as patients Fantastic. have had cardiac surgery, they're taken to the ICU, their tube gets taken out and we put the high flow straight on. And that's the intervention arm. And the control arm is the standard two, three, four liters of oxygen through a mask or nasal specs. And in fact, Auckland is our second best recruiter. They've been fantastic to work with and uh, they've recruited uh, uh, lots and lots of patients. And we're about 280 patients in out of 800 plans. Yeah, well, that's fantastic and fantastic to hear. Um, now, you are also the editor of Anesthesia. Tell me, how is the journal going? Uh, the journal's going pretty well. I've been the editor now for nearly seven years. Uh, when I started, we had an impact factor of three, uh, and we were pretty uh, unknown to most people outside of the UK. And we've just mm. heard that our impact factor's got up to nearly 13, which is very exciting because it means we're now the number oh, one wow. ranked journal out of all the anesthesia, pain, perioptive journals. So uh, that's very exciting. Uh, and uh, it's a testament to the hard work of the whole team. I work with a big team of editors and uh, associate editors from around the world. Uh, including uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, America, Europe. And uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've been uh, very excited to hear that news. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I had down to ask you what have been some of the key achievements for the journal in recent years. That sounds like a, a pretty phenomenal mm -hmm. achievement. Yeah, so we're big on social media. We saw the importance of social media for communicating with people all around the world in your sphere, whatever that sphere is. Uh, and uh, people uh, use social media now wherever they are, whether they're in a, uh, you know, a park in India or a, a hospital in New Zealand, uh, and they can download our articles for free anywhere in the world once we tweet them. So on social media, if they follow us, they can get anything for free. We don't put anything behind a paywall via social media which means there's no discrimination. Anyone can read it anywhere. With All they need is a device. Uh, and I think it's been that access and providing universal access via a simple uh, media, be it your phone, your computer, your tablet, uh, that's been the sort of the key driver. Plus, we do a lot of videos, infographics, podcasts, interviews. And it's just really about dissemination and letting people see the work. So the most depressing thing as an author, as a researcher, is to write something, publish it, and then nobody reads it. It bombs. Uh, and you just think, well, what was that yeah, about? Absolutely. But if you write something, publish it, everyone talks about it, asks questions, critiques it. Uh, that's really our, our, our ethos to, you know, the, mm. the authors do the great work, the quality work, and then we publish it and, and, and show it to people so they can read it, they can use it. And that's really been behind our, our, our success, if you like, but really more about uh, mm. our strategy. Now, I mean, social media and communication um, via social media is a real passion area of mine also. And I know that many of our anesthetists are really keen to join the social media to connect with other colleagues, to share research, and also just also connect with patients and the public. What would you say to a fellow anaesthetist who might be feeling unconfident about doing this? So I think it's a very good medium as long as you stick within your group. So I think it's very hard to, to go outside of your group. So we know 
a little bit about our specialty and it's a great way to connect with anesthetists and people who work around the world in, in that field um, and if you do that mm -hmm. it, it's quite easy to do and, and pretty safe it becomes more difficult when you connect outside that group in areas that you don't know about and it's very difficult to connect with patients because of course patients interpret what is written and uh, what appears on social media very differently uh, and I think where trouble begins is where people try and connect with uh, uh, non-anesthetists, non-intensivists and so on who don't perhaps interpret the, the, the information differently and then might be upset about things or might have mm. very difficult questions to answer. So it's not great for connecting with patients, I have to say. Uh, mm. It's very difficult to connect with, uh, with uh, non-anesthetists because of differences in interpretation. But it's a fantastic way of keeping up to date and connecting with people in your discipline. And I know people that have made very good friends on social media, not even having met them until, uh, you know, a year or two later at a conference like the one we're having in Wellington. Uh, mm. And it's, it's amazing for that because you can, you know, read to them, chat to them, ask them questions in a very uh, non-threatening, very safe environment. Mm. So start small and stay in brand. Yes, I think so. I think... That's my experience anyway, and it's the people who will try to go very wide and try and get a really broad audience where it becomes very difficult because of differences mm. in, in, in understanding interpretation. Yes, absolutely. It's easy when you're all speaking the same language and you've got the same base knowledge that you're starting with, absolutely. Now, you are also on the board of the Association of Anaesthetists. You're a very busy person. What are some of the challenges for this membership organisation? So we have 11,000 anaesthetists in the UK, uh, both trainees, doctors in training, consultants, uh, staff and associate specialists, which are our non-training grades in the UK. And uh, our, our members look to us for education, for information and knowledge, the journal, uh, conferences, uh, uh, webinars, seminars, uh, and then of course support w for well-being, for working uh, uh, behaviours, for uh, uh, disasters, you know, when, when things happen, uh, for guidelines about how to best practice based on the uh, published information, a whole bunch of things. But really it's a membership organisation, so it's what members want uh, from their organisations, so education, support, well-being, uh, and a, a chance to meet up with people again in a in a very non-threatening but very open and uh, fun mm. environment. We organise a lot of meetings, much like the one in Wellington, where we give people a chance mm. to get together, come off their phones, and actually talk to each other over a coffee. And I think <laughs> pe people really value that. It was missing for two years with COVID. And now what I've seen the last couple of meetings I've been to, people have been very excited, very happy, uh, listening and, and taking it in, but also talking about it. And then it's like, oh, it's so great to see you. And, you know, I think that's, that's been a major plus of the last six months. Uh, I think you've got that more to come in New Zealand. We've had it for six months and it's been fantastic. Mm. But I think you will get it. Mm, absolutely. I, I agree. It was really palpable how missing that really was um, that that in-person connection we were very fortunate in New Zealand to get uh, we managed to somehow sneak a, a New Zealand only conference in at the end of 2020 um, which was just such a treat but sort of aside from that we've really had quite a large void now you attended the joint New Zealand Society 
of anesthetists and ANSCA conference some years ago in Queenstown where you spoke about scientific fraud in journals. What was the highlight of that conference for you? Um, well, the, the, uh, Alan Merry uh, got a, a lifetime award uh, and mm-hmm. I've known Professor Merry for quite a few years. He's been a, a good friend and a good mentor and so it was very exciting to hear his life story really as told by his friends and colleagues and to see him collect his award was actually very emotional. I really enjoyed it and to go out for dinner with him and his wife. Uh, and then I, uh, I met a lot of the crew from Wellington who had been to the UK at various times. Uh, so we, we hung out together and I got to meet their families who had uh, lived down in the South Island. Uh, so really it was just sort of meeting friends, uh, nice. uh, sharing that time with Alan that was just so very exciting uh, and uh, hanging out in Queenstown for a week. There are worse places to hang out for a week, that's Exactly. Sure. <laughs> and have you been to Wellington before? No, I haven't. Uh, I've heard about the 90-degree turn just before you hit the runway. Um, and the last time <laughs> when I went to Queenstown, the, the aircraft couldn't get in. So we had three uh, failed landings and had to land in Dunedin. <laughs> and I had to drive across the mountain. Mm. So I'm a little bit nervous about the landing oh, in gosh. Wellington. Uh, but uh, no, I'm looking forward mm. to it. I've done the camper van trip across uh, New Zealand where we drove from uh, from the South Island to the North Island over three weeks but we never went to Wellington so this wow. is a bit that's missing. Nice and are you going to do any other travel in Aotearoa when you're here? So I'm going to Auckland on my way for a bit uh, to mm-hmm. meet up with the team there who are as I say recruiting patients from our trial. I'm going to go Fantastic. to the uh, aerosol generation uh, laboratory uh, in Auckland uh, and to mm-hmm. the Fish and Paykel uh, um, factory uh, and uh, laboratory with some simulation and some aerosol work that we're doing. So that would be good. And then I'm coming to Wellington and I've got uh, a week in Wellington meeting everyone and obviously coming to the conference. So all in told, I'll be away for two weeks. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We are really looking forward to seeing you in Wellington, but especially hearing from you. Um, And hope that the the travel over and the jet lag isn't all too bad. No, it should be fine. I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm happy to have a coffee or a beer with anybody and have a chat about uh, if they want to ask any questions about either the the high-flow nasal oxygen work or anemia, as you said, in pregnancy. I've got an anemia clinic this morning mm. after I finished talking to you, Morgan. I've got eight patients with anemia, including two who are pregnant. Uh, and uh, all eight are women. It's a, it's a major issue. Um, and also, two have got long COVID. Yeah. So long COVID is a terrible condition, uh, and it overlaps with uh, iron deficiency and pernicious anemia. So that's my clinical work this mm. morning is, uh, is uh, iron and, and B12. Uh, so I'm happy to chat to anyone about that while I'm in Wellington. Fantastic. Well, your iron deficiency work has certainly changed the management um, in the hospital networks that I work in, and I'm very thankful for you to you for that and certainly look forward to talking to you in person. Excellent. Great. And thanks very much for your time. Take care. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Klein. We really look forward to hosting you down here in Aotearoa in a few months. And then finally, now we're going to catch up with Dr. Wayne Morris, who is doing such incredible mahi in the anesthesiology community globally and features at the CSC on Sunday, October the 23rd in the Global Health Plenary on Global Anesthesia, Why It Matters. Kia ora, Wayne, and welcome to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Kia ora, Morgan. 
it's great, great to join you today. So you are currently based in Christchurch, is that correct? Correct. And are you a born and bred Cantabrian? Yeah, I was born here uh, in 1965 and I've lived in a few other places. I've lived in Rakaia, also in the South Island, Invercargill, Dunedin and Napier. But I've been back in Christchurch for the last 20 years. And where did you do your medical training? So I trained in Dunedin and Christchurch and then I was a house surgeon up in Napier. After that I uh, went overseas for two and a half years and did the big OE and then I did my anaesthetic training back in Christchurch and I went across to Melbourne to finish it. And then how did you become interested in overseas aid? Jackie, my wife and I were quite keen to work somewhere else after I finished my anaesthetic training and uh, we had toyed with the idea of working in the Pacific. When we were in Australia I met two Australian anaesthetists. One was Hayden Pernt, who is a Tasmanian, and also Steve Kinnear, who lives in Adelaide. And both Hayden and Steve had worked in the Pacific, and they really encouraged me to get involved in Pacific work. So in 1999, I applied for a job at the Fiji School of Medicine, actually at the same time as I applied for a job in Christchurch, but I decided to take the Fijian job instead of the Christchurch one. And how do you think that your time in Fiji has then gone on and influenced the rest of your career? Well, it was an incredibly influential time for me and, and it was an amazing time for Jackie and our two boys, Cameron who was four when we went over there and Hayden who was one. I worked as a senior lecturer in anaesthesia and physiology at the Fiji School of Medicine as it was then called. And I also worked as a specialist anaesthetist at the main hospital in Suva, the Colonial War Memorial Hospital. And the interesting thing about Fiji is it's, it's, it's a country that still has quite severe resource limitations. Soon after we arrived in Fiji, there was a coup and a group of um, armed uh, people, George Spate and a group of soldiers, uh, took over the parliament and held the government hostage. And there was a lot of people left the country. Uh, the health system was put under extreme pressure. So for me, it was like a crash course in, in what some of the realities are of working in a low resource environment, uh, one that's under a lot of pressure. And then now, you know, jumping forward to the 2020s, and you've played a pivotal role in Fiji to help with the response to COVID. Can you talk us through your experience with that? So after the Christchurch earthquakes, I became a member of an organisation called the New Zealand Medical Assistance Team. And this is a civilian team which aims to provide medical support if there are emergencies in our region or in New Zealand. And I went to Fiji in 2016 as part of a forward planning team that was following tropical cyclone Winston. I was also invited back and last year in 2021 when there was a rapid increase in COVID cases due to the Delta variant. And the story behind that is that um, my colleagues and friends in the Australian Medical Assistance Team asked me to join them and uh, because of my long-standing relationship with Fiji I, I was um, asked to provide that sort of input during the visit. So we went over there for about um, six weeks we had three weeks on the ground in Suva and we had another three weeks in uh, isolation and quarantine. So one week when we arrived and a couple of weeks when we got back. 
but we were asked by the Fijian government and the health authorities there to provide assistance with some of the systems um, with uh, combating that outbreak of COVID-19. Yeah, wow, what an incredible thing to be involved in. Um, so I'm conscious that we've just talked about Fiji so far, but you've actually had some really other incredible overseas experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those? After Fiji, I, I got involved with, with uh, teaching in the Pacific region, the wider Pacific region and parts of Asia. And overall, I've probably taught in dozens of countries around the world. Um, you know, some very memorable, memorable, memorable trips would be ones to Belarus and one to Honduras, and uh, there was another one to Nepal. I've been to Nepal a few times, and, and Tanzania. Uh, there's three trips that I think are really memorable. One was a trip in 2006 where I accompanied a surgical team up to Yap which is an island in the Federated States of Micronesia and we did a whole lot of ear, nose and throat operations and I remember one child there who had airway obstruction because of neurofibromatosis and uh, a trip like that's amazing because you really have to work as a team and, and think on your feet. Uh, a second trip that comes to mind is a trip to Bujumbura in Burundi so that's in East Central Africa and on that trip we were uh, teaching a course called Essential Pain Management. This is a course that I co-wrote with my friend Roger Gook who lives in Perth and uh, that trip for me was memorable because, um, because even though there are really severe resource constraints in a place like Burundi the local doctors and nurses were just so keen to learn and so keen to learn how to be an instructor on a course like this. So it was a really rewarding course. And then I, just, just for something completely different, uh, I went to the World Health Assembly in 2019 and delivered a short statement on behalf of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. And uh, that was another very memorable trip, but obviously for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the, the WFSA, congratulations on your presidency. And you are going to be joining us to have a korero about the WFSA at a different time. Um, but I just wanted to say congratulations to you for that. It's a wonderful achievement. Thanks. Thanks, Morgan. Now, your talk at the conference is part of the Global Health Plenary on why global anaesthesia matters. Can you tell us a little bit about the session and who do you think should attend and what, you know, why it's important to be part of the program? Yeah, it's great to be invited to give a talk at the uh, Combined Scientific Congress and I'm really excited this year that we've got a plenary dedicated to global health. I'm sharing the session with Rob McDougall, who is a paediatric anaesthetist in Melbourne, and I'm going to be talking about some of the global issues. Rob's going to be talking more about the regional issues. And I'd like to think that everybody should attend this session. It's <laughs> a you know, session that really is very important because we, we talk about equity. I think we're becoming more comfortable, with, comfortable about talking about equity in Australia and New Zealand. But we also need to think about equity at a world level. 
And there are some really important reasons, I think, why we should be interested in global health. It's, uh, one, one is just that there's a moral and an ethical imperative. And we've also found during the COVID-19 pandemic that, that we're all interconnected. And what happens in other parts of the world is important for us in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think are the greatest challenges in global anaesthesia specifically at the moment? There was a report put out by the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery in 2015 and this, this, uh, this commission found that 5 billion people out of 7 billion people don't have access to safe, affordable anaesthesia and surgical care when needed. So I, that in a nutshell is the biggest challenge and there are two really big issues related to that. One is that we have a global anaesthesia workforce crisis that just simply aren't enough anaesthesiologists or non-physician anaesthetists in the world. And we've also got a, a huge burden of surgical disease, which I think in a recent decades has been underestimated. And we know from other work that 30% of the world's burden of disease is due to surgical disease and trauma. And this just hasn't achieved, it hasn't uh, received the attention it's deserved by, from governments and, and other key stakeholders. And what do you think that we can best do collectively, as especially or individually as anesthesiologists? Well, with my WFSA hat on, I think the WFSA has an incredibly important role in continuing to advocate for our specialty worldwide. Uh, Individually, Australia and New Zealand uh, are doing fantastic collaborative work with our, our um, anaesthesia colleagues in the Pacific. To me, education is a really critical part of the answer. To we need to strengthen the workforce, we need to increase the number of anaesthesia providers, and we also need to you know, ensure that these people are well trained. And, um, New Zealand and Australia have really punched above their weight and, uh, you know, in terms of working collaboratively with, with our neighbours in the region. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, thank you so much for your thoughts on this and a little bit of a preview about what we can potentially expect. Um, and I really look forward to hearing you and seeing you on Sunday session, the Global Health Plenary with Rob McDougall. Great. Many thanks for inviting me, Morgan, and I look forward to seeing you then as well. Mm -hmm.